Good evening, this is Justin Ford in the studio for Africa Christian Action Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. Tonight we are discussing mission mobilizer extraordinary, George Voa. In a recent show about Christian literature in Africa, uh, Dr. Hammond, you touched on George Voa and Operation Mobilization. In light of recent news, today's show is entirely devoted to George Voa, a remarkable man with whom you shared a passion for literature, evangelism, and Christian leadership training. Yes, um, this past week on the 14th of April, uh, the church and missionary movements has lost one of its great mission mobilizers, George Verver, the founder of one of the largest mission organizations and movements in the world, Operation Mobilization. He motivated and mobilized tens of thousands of missionary volunteers to proclaim God's love around the globe. So George Verver leaves behind his beloved wife, Drenna, and his three children, Ben, Daniel, and Krista, and quite a few grandchildren as well. He had a brief battle with cancer and died peacefully at his home just outside London, surrounded by his family. Well, George Viv is a good friend of the mission, a co-worker with Reverend Bill Bethan. My wife and Laura remembered Uncle George being a regular guest around their dinner table in their home near Salzburg in Austria when they were the hub through which many ministries travelled going into Eastern Europe. So uh, this this is a important milestone and a new um member of the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 11 speaks about. Dr. Hammond, can you briefly sketch the man, describe his personality and his physical appearance? Yes, well, you wouldn't forget him if you'd met him. First of all, he had a trademark um, map of the world jacket, and uh, which he always seemed to wear, and he regularly would come along with his favorite prop, uh, an inflatable globe that he would blow up, and he'd be bouncing it around in the pulpit area, and then spinning it around to point out Nepal and Afghanistan and Mongolia and some mission fields and giving you some insights. And uh, here's a dynamo. And uh, people described him as energetic, devout, single-minded, visionary, goal-orientated, ADHD, resourceful, steadfast, quick-witted, innovative, adventurous, eccentric. He, he is also generous and gracious. But uh, George Viver was really obsessed with world missions. He said he wore global underwear, although his wife forbade him to demonstrate it. And uh, he had global shower curtains, he had global tablecloths, and uh, he kept this little company going with buying massive orders of global T-shirts and jackets that he donated and gave and sold and had auctioned all over the world uh, in order to promote missions and especially the missionary vessels. Uh, famously, one of his global jackets was auctioned for $90,000 to somebody in Northern Ireland, uh, all the money of which went to this... Uh, Ship the MV Dulos. Can you please describe George Verwe's background, his early life, and how he came to be a Christian? Yes, he came from Dutch parents. His parents immigrated from the Netherlands after the Second World War to uh, the United States. He was born and brought up in New Jersey, not far from New York. Um, he was quite an entrepreneur. For, as a teenager, he got a, a job selling fire extinguishers, and he became a very energetic fire extinguisher salesman. He worked out how to get people to buy fire extinguishers. He had started a little gasoline fire um, on the road just in front of someone's house and then extinguished it, and he said people were very impressed. And uh, with that, um, he soon had uh, 200 other co-salesmen working for him, selling fire extinguishers. So he said his greatest interest as a youngster was making money and uh, getting girlfriends. He said that that was his whole life. He was secular. He did go to Sunday school, but his church did not preach the gospel, so he was ignorant of the gospel until a neighbor, uh, a lady, 
put him on her Holy Ghost hit list, as he describes it, and prayed not only that he be converted to Christ, but that he become a missionary. She sent him a Gospel of John in the post, and uh, he started to read that and um, was intrigued. Then he got an invitation to a Billy Graham event in Madison Square Garden in New York, where he was compelled to make a decision to surrender his life to Christ through Billy Graham's preaching at night. And out of this came a desire to be committed to global missions and to spreading God's word throughout the, throughout the planet. Uh, he later attended Moody Bible Institute, where he met his wife, Drenna. Um, he said that uh, he had accumulated 33 girlfriends before he um, turned 18. And when he went to Bible college, there were just so many pretty girls. He said he had seven uh, crushes immediately and infatuated with a whole lot of girls, but none more so than Drenna. She was working in the library. And he walked up to her and he proposed to her in these words, if you marry me, you'll probably be eaten by cannibals in New Guinea. And uh, on one date, George took Drenna to the local park and fished out of the trash can some half-eaten meal and offered these thrown-away leftovers for her lunch. When Drenna accepted this humble meal, George was convinced she could handle the life of being a missionary's wife. And after their wedding, uh, George actually gave away his engagement ring to um, someone else he thought needed more, and he took the wedding cake to sell at the first gasoline station for fuel as they drove down to Mexico for a mission. So that gives you a bit of an idea of the kind of person he was. Another anecdote I could give of what type of person he was is at a public church meeting, when a church deacon started to ostentatiously dangle his metal watch from the back of the church to attract George Verver's attention, as to the time, George Verver shouted out, Praise God, there's a man offering to donate his watch for the cause of world missions. And the deacon promptly sat down. But that, that was, that's classic George Verver. So having made a commitment to missions, how did uh, George Verwe proceed to fulfill that commitment? Right, so uh, one of his um, roommates uh, explained it this way. Dale Roten uh, was um, at 18 years old uh, at college in Maryville College in Tennessee. Um, and George Verver said, let's pray about world missions. And he gave the idea of why don't we sell everything we've got to buy a truck that summer to fill it with gospel literature in Spanish and drive down to Mexico because 70% of people in Mexico don't have access to the scriptures. So after they prayed, George lifted up his head and he looked at his um, roommate and said, well, are you ready to go? And Dale Roten said he was actually startled. He'd only just heard this idea of selling everything. And he said, George, it takes longer than that. And George says, well, I don't see why not. Um, uh, because they've got a need and we can meet that need. So the rest really doesn't matter. So Dale Rawton said, George's one all-consuming passion in life has been to be a channel whereby people would become lifelong friends of Jesus. His comfort zone is breaking out of his comfort zone. He really only feels secure when he's risking everything. What came out of George Verwe's um, first trip to Mexico? Well, uh, that really was the beginning of what we now call Operation Mobilization, although at the time they called it Send the Light, named after his favorite hymn. And uh, so literature and literature evangelism became the premier key driving force in the mission. And uh, Spain, uh, Mexico, of course, Spanish was the main language, and uh, it was a Catholic country, but they were very hostile to anything religious anyway, it's had a pretty secular government just trying to wage war against the church. And so there were no religious radio stations allowed. So he learned that one way he could market was they were selling books, Bibles and books, of course. So uh, 
they would use the radio in order to advertise their products. And so they'd explain why the Bible is the greatest book and the most translated book and the most popular, most read book in all of history, the bestseller of all time. And they would be therefore using the secular radio stations to market the Bible and evangelism. And they managed to, to do that successfully in Mexico and later in Spain. So they went to Europe after that. Of course, they'd now learned to speak Spanish. So they went to Spain first with the idea of, of uh, a work to Europe. And that's where they bumped into Bill Bathman, who informed them of the importance of recruiting local people. There are Christians in Europe, and there are pockets of Christians that you can recruit your short-term workers from in England, Germany, France. You don't need to go back to America for it. And uh, that's where OM really took off once they'd gone through to England to network. So the whole vision of uh, Operation Mobilization really was birthed with that first Mexico mission. Can you tell us a bit more about the evolution of uh, Operation Mobilization? I suppose the word mobilization is a clue. Yes, it is. It's The global impact of OM is absolutely enormous. It's become one of the largest missions in the world, and it's innovative, short-term missions of that you didn't have to be a lifetime worker who went for years to Bible college before you could go on an evangelistic outreach. So OM has now 3,300 workers from 134 countries, and they're working in 147 countries. It's estimated that more than 160,000 people have participated in an OM short-term mission. So that means having trained and mobilized 160,000 people on short-term missions. Over a billion people have been reached with the gospel through the ministries of OM. I mean, that's pretty impressive, but you might assume that OM had lots of staff and resources and influence, but they didn't at the beginning. Um, it, it really started out very humbly. The first time I met George Vivett was at the Stellenbosch Sending Week, Stellenbosch University Mission Week. He was the speaker for the Sending Week, and he had just spoken at the Studenterkirk. And as he was walking out, I reached uh, out a hand and I stated, I'm the son-in-law of Bill Bathman. Immediately, George Viver stopped, he spun around and he exclaimed, Bill Bathman is the reason there isn't Operation Mobilization. And then he related how Bill Bathman interviewed him in Spain, invited him to come for a series of meetings in England, and the mission that Bill Bathman had set up in England called Network provided the platform and initial recruits for Operation Mobilization. And this included Mike Evans, who ended up running... Operation Mobilization France, and later Mike Evans became principal of the Geneva Bible Institute, where I met him. And uh, when I first met Mike Evans, he was a guest speaker at the Quasimant Ministers Conference. And as Bill Bathman now walked through the door, um, Mike Evans shouted, there's a very dangerous person here, Bill Bathman. He invited me for a summer uh, mission outreach and took me the next 30 to 40 years. And he married a French woman. He's living in France, and now he's principal of Geneva Bible Institute. And, uh, you know, it's a very dangerous thing to to go to a prayer meeting with Bill Bethany, he said. Well, the first big summer that they launched, uh, 1963, and 1962, they mobilized 200 people for short-term missions around. Um, and they came from Britain, Spain, Germany, Netherlands, Switzerland, and even America. But 1963, they had more than 2,000 volunteers who blanketed all of Europe and um literature distribution, and in fact, that's a very novel way of mobilizing this. How did George Bell mobilize the biggest mission in the world? Well, it was mostly motivating them to mobilize. Each volunteer had to raise their own support from their church and family, and 20% of what they raised needed to go to the mission for administrative fees to run 
O-M. And uh, then they were given books. They weren't given uh, petrol or vehicles. They had to travel on uh, trains and buses. And they had books to sell and Bibles to sell and had little portable fold-up tables. I think he called them like card tables. You fold them out in a railway station, a bus station, in the marketplace, and they would sell books and Bibles. And as he said, you can't just expect people to come past your book table. You've got to act like a newspaperman. This is the world's number one best-selling book, and you know you've got to be promoting uh, the book like a new salesman, shouting out almost like a, a mixture between street preaching and salesman. And so uh, they basically were funding themselves and traveling through the trains and the buses all over. I've been in Europe and different towns and suddenly seen OM team doing a street drama or a musical item um, in in the marketplace, like in Belgium and. Uh, they are of ever-present force all over Europe, distributing literature, trains, marketplaces, and so on. So uh, they actually, in 1963, branched into India, which has become their main work, and throughout the Middle East. And a whole lot of ministries have developed out of OM, like Frontiers, which is the world's biggest mission to the Muslim world. That ground of OM as well. So they then saw the need for getting through the oceans and uh, launching God's navy. So the MV Logos or missionary vessel Logos was launched in October 1970. It was the first of the great missionary ships. It's basically a floating bookshop. Later MV Logos 2 and then MV Logos Hope and uh, MV Logos Hope is still um, plying the oceans and uh, going to ports all over South America and Asia uh, sometimes across Africa as well. And, uh, you know, even when I went to London on Victoria Wharf, they had tens of thousands of people from London coming through the shipment. Massive impact, even even in European ports amongst people who you think are exposed to the gospel. Uh, they've been able to make massive impact. So 5,000 titles on the average ship, an amazing operation. Over the years, 45 million people have visited their ships and... Um, come on board to buy Christian books and so on. Well, in 1989, just before the fall of the Iron Curtain, as part of the um, seven-year Jericho prayer march that the Eastern European Christians launched, OM planned for 5,000 young people from 50 countries to participate. In fact, 7,000 volunteers came from 76 countries, and that was the Love Europe Conference, or the first which have been multiplied many times since. And even today, OM still work in Europe in more than 30 countries. And uh, they, in 2003, George Viver handed over to Peter Maiden as a new international director. And since 2013, a Singaporean, Lawrence Tong, has become director uh, of, um, of OM based in Singapore. Uh, George Viver continued to be based in London, but um, he... After 2003, he didn't exactly retire. He just retired from running OM. He then launched himself into special projects, which is particularly his literature ministry, funding especially Bibles and indigenous languages and a whole range of different projects, which we were involved in as well. Yeah, I'm intrigued, and I'm sure the listeners are, to hear more about or more details about the ship um, aspect of Operation Mobilization. Yes, so the first ship, the MV Logos Hope, um, ran aground on rocks of terror. The Fugo, Chile, I remember the shock actually hearing of this. In atrocious weather, uh, the ship 
uh, was crashed onto rocks in 1988, uh, just off the coast of South America. And the ship couldn't be saved, but not a single crew member was lost. Nobody was even injured. Today, it's something of a tourist attraction for ships to see the skeletal hull of the Logos that's still uh, visible, uh, stick on the rocks there. Uh, it's, uh, but um, over 17 years, the MV Logos had welcomed six and a half million people on board ship during 408 ports of call in 108 countries. So pretty phenomenal achievement. So in 1988, the former Antonio Lazero became the MV Logos II, which was retired in 2008. Their third ship, the MV uh, Dulos, held the record for being the oldest ocean-going vessel still in service. Launched the same year that the Titanic was. But as um, George Viver says, the owners of the Titanic boasted not even God could sink the Titanic. We say only God can keep the Dulos afloat. And the Dulos is still afloat. The Dulos was retired at the end of 2009. So the MV Logos Hope was built in Germany, launched in Kiel 2009, twice the size of the MV Dulos, provides much greater capacities to serve the community. They have so many things that can go on board at the same time, from not just the bookshop and uh, the restaurant and the coffee bar and film place and seminars and conferences, church services. There's so many things they do on board the ship. And all the crew not only raise their support, uh, but uh, they all have a, a task, uh, normal job on board the ship. It's a very busy ship. But when you reach ports, everyone can go into town and be involved in ministry in the marketplaces, the schools, the churches, uh, all kinds of community outreaches in towns while people come onto the ship to visit and see the bookshop. And So it's a ministry of going out and bringing people in. And it's been super successful. So over the years, something ridiculous uh, that different OM ships have visited 480 different ports in 151 countries and territories around the world and they've welcomed 45 million visitors aboard the ships who've purchased many of the uh, 5,000 titles available. Um, in many restricted access Muslim countries like in the Middle East, these ship visits have been the only significant exposure to Christianity for these unreached communities. You now think of visiting places like Tripoli and Cairo and huge amounts of visitors. Uh, South America and uh, Asia have been particularly popular uh, ports of call for uh, these missionary ships. Now to change uh, topic, the first chapter of George Rowe's well-known book, Out of the Comfort Zone, exhorts missionaries to be gracious, or as he puts it, to be grace-awakened, to be big-hearted. Um, this is a topic that was close to his heart, it seems. Very much so. George Rowe is the most brutally honest mission speaker I've ever heard. He'd speak openly of his weaknesses, his failings and his sins, and how he, uh, his father had been a drunk and he himself had battled numerous sexual sins, having 33 girlfriends before he made 18, and including fooling around with girls he'd just led to the Lord. And he described one time when he'd just led a girl to the Lord and he was intensely nicking in the church parking lot and realized this is actually not what he should be doing and this is not a good example at all. Um, at missions conferences, spoke about plainly about the snares of Satan that threatened to derail anyone in missions. On a number of occasions, I heard George confess how he had battled with pornography, even when choosing to go into the forest for an extended time of prayer, for deeper life. He had come across a pornographic magazine hanging over a branch, and he said, I wish I could say how I had resisted the temptation and fled from it, but sadly not. And he gave lots of warnings on how, you know, the spirit is willing, the flesh is very weak. 
And he said he first came to Europe with an ugly American legalism, that he is a Pharisee and he is very judgmental and harsh. And he's written in his books, Messiology, speaking about where two or three Christians are gathered, you get a mess. And uh, because of our sinful natures and because no one is good except God alone, you've got to expect um, the church is full of broken people who need uh, works of grace in him. And uh, he's written in his book, Confessions of a Toxic Perfectionist, which is actually quite extraordinary, um, that we all need to be careful about pharisaical judgmentalism, becoming Christian legalists, where we start to impose our culture or our denominational distinctions upon other people. We've got to be gracious and merciful and recognize if God is, if God can forgive them and accept them, then that should be good enough for us too. So he emphasized the need for a revolution of love. That's another title of one of his books. Radical discipleship and a theology of suffering. The West has a theology of prosperity. The East has a theology of suffering. We need to uh, embrace the theology of suffering. There's so much we can learn from the persecuted churches in the East. So he warned against extremist teachings, such as the prosperity or healing emphasis, the idea that it's always God's will to heal everyone and it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy and rich and all this. He said those are very toxic, dangerous emphases that can ruin churches and people. He said you need to recognize the hand of God at work in other cultures, other characters, other denominations, and organizations quite different from your own. So we need to have a ministry of balance, giving utmost priority to the fulfillment of the Great Commission, but also recognizing the need to be good Samaritans. And he mentioned the, the seven uh, social disasters that we need to be concerned about. It's so important for us to also be involved in social justice, not that it should supplant or ever be more important than our gospel ministry of fulfilling the Great Commission, but goes along with love and action. So caring for pre-born babies, uh, those without access to clean water, those in abject poverty, the need to love God's creation, to work to protect God's creatures, to clean up the environment. So these are also part of our Christian witness. We don't just fulfill a Great Commission by what we say, but by what we do. And so... Uh, love and action, uh, putting boots on the ground and, and persevering. Don't allow critics and crises to keep you um, from the most important priorities or to prevent you from persevering. You must never give up. You must keep going. So George was very zealous in evangelism. He did preach in open airs and town squares. But he was also concerned for social justice and for the environment. And he encouraged us to be like that too. We saw him as a team player. He genuinely was concerned for other ministries. He is generous in supporting others involved in cutting-edge pioneer ministry, especially in restricted access areas. And I was astounded that a man who had so many responsibilities and had started one of the biggest missions in the world, that he is concerned even for our little mission and our projects and wanting to support us. And he was regularly corresponding. He'd be writing to me, I'm just about to board the plane in Singapore, I'm in Hong Kong and so on. And and, you know, he had this on his heart and he communicated and he said he read every letter he received. And, uh, you know, I sent a lot of letters to him and he wrote a lot of letters back. And uh, he was somebody you could turn to for counsel. He genuinely was concerned for people. And uh, he spoke about Gideon having his 300 men. He said, well, I've got just 100. And he spoke about his 100 movers and shakers and world missions that he wanted to support. And that's just part of a special project. project. And uh, amazingly, he counted me as one of his 100 Gideon men, and he was regularly um, seeking to fund our Bibles and indigenous African language projects and things like that. So there's many a project for Sudan, uh, Zambia, Congo, Mozambique that uh, he was involved in and helping us to make. So even though 
he had his own mission. He was concerned to help other little missions, and he is delighted with the missions that left um, Operation Mobilization, launched new missions like Frontiers and Youth of the Mission. He didn't see it as a failure. He just saw it as, well, God's birthed another ministry, and it's going to be even more effective now. And uh, our mission's too big to run all these things, and, and how wonderful if some people leave our mission, have learned lessons, and are now starting a new and even better, more focused mission in some areas, such as Frontiers. And uh, so a real team player. You mentioned that uh, you were one of his hundred Gideon men. How did how did he f- actually impact your work? Well, for example, at Gakawi Global Consultation on World Evangelization, the biggest world missions event in history to that point was held in Pretoria, 1997. Something like 4,700 participants from over 180 odd countries. Well, George Viver was running the Special Missions Executive Section while the main Kakawi was taking place at Hatfield, um, Hatfield Baptist up the hill. We were down in Pretoria at Pretoria Baptist Church, and that was the Missions Executives meeting, and, and George Viver was leading the Missions Mobilization Section. So he's going through the Unreached Peoples Groups, and he came to the Krongo of the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. He shouted, Peter Hammond, you go to the Nuba Mountains. Here, you take the Krongo people as your project. And he handed me the file. And that's the way George Viver operated. Well, on my next mission to Noob Mountains later that year, I asked the host about the Krongu. And he directed me to a pastor and evangelist who informed me, yes, they were of the Krongu tribe. Most of the tribe were now Christians, but they didn't have any Bibles or hymn books. They remembered the Australian missionaries from the Sudan United Mission. SUM, however, was expelled by the Arab government back in 1964. There were five Christians amongst the Krongu tribe at that time, but now there were more than 70% of their people were evangelical Christians. Well, from the file on the Krongo, I learned Sudan United Mission missionaries from Australia translate the New Testament into the Krongo language so that after returning from that mission, I could track down everything that was translated to Krongo, including the New Testament and the hymn books, and arrange for these to be printed by the Sudan Literature Mission, Sudan Literature Commission, SCL. And on our next mission in New Mount, I was privilege to arrange for these New Testaments and hymn books in the Krongu language to be delivered to the people. There was a lot of great rejoicing and we felt humbled and privileged to deliver the labor of love that missionaries from far away and long ago were not privileged to see the fruits of the gospel seed that they had so faithfully sown. So we can reap where others have sown. They did the translation work years ago and we were privileged to be the ones to deliver the finished work into the hands of the people who it was designed for. Dr. Hammond, what was George Verwer's legacy? He took the Great Commission seriously. And so the lifelong fervor, uh, we call it the Verver fervor for missions, mobilized untold numbers of Christians, hundreds of thousands of Christians across borders, cultures, and continents to proclaim the good news of God's love. He launched the largest mission organization of the 20th century, which sent out thousands of short-term or long-term missionaries every year. Currently, OM has 3,300 adult missionaries from 134 countries working in 147 countries. And an estimated 300 other mission agencies have been started as a result of contact with OM or launched by former OMers. So that's part of it. But there's another great heritage, and that is Operation World, which Patrick Johnson first launched, Intercessory Handbook for Every Country in the World. It at first was just Ronioed. Well, George Weber said, this is a very important book. This is one of the most important books ever published in the 20th century to do with missions. 
we need to get this more widely circulated. So Corden has designed people said, can you design better covers? Let's get this published. Let's get it promoted all over the world. Use Sendalite STL to make it known worldwide and distributed available everywhere. And so the success of Operation World, which is now published in 15 languages and something in the region of 15 million copies worldwide, um, George Viver really helped take Patrick Johnson's phenomenal missiology research and made it the worldwide phenomenon it has been. And it was Operation World that mobilized me into Mozambique on our first cross-border mission for Frontline back in 1982. So that was a great legacy. I think Operation Mobilization and Operation World together have been some of the most phenomenal um, impacts in the 20th century. I should also add that George Weber has made many of his books and other books available completely free, Kindle, eBooks, or PDFs, on his georgeverver.com website. So if you go to www.georgeverver, that's V-E-R-W-R, georgeverver.com, you can download a lot of great, powerful, discipleship missionary books absolutely free. You can't beat that price. Are there any other resources you'd like to bring? To this? Yes, um, we will be having on our www.frontlinemissionessay.org website the video of our presentation for the memorial service for George Viver. So go on to frontlinemissionessay.org and you'll see audio and video on uh, George Viver's memorial service and links also to his georgeviver.com website for the free books on his ministry. Thank you very much for sharing your insights and celebrating George Viver's extraordinary life. In closing, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Please join us next week at the same time, 104 FM on Radio Tigerberg, for the next program of Salt and Light. God bless and good night. <laughs>